Welcome once again to Exploring the Scriptures presentation of Church History Study with Dr. Ron Bartholomew. Here now is Dr. Bartholomew. Welcome, folks. We're here to study church history today. Um, we're going to, we just finished the Utah War, and now we're going to do the priesthood resolution of the Utah War in the Civil War era, which is not a very encouraging time for the history of the church, but it's better than it was last time. Uh, I want to remind you to watch Golden Gems Radio, to listen there if you can, and uh, give them some input for what you like and don't like. We're also preparing to leave to go to England, the Sacred Grove, and the Holy Land in the fall. So if you're interested in those tours, you can contact me or you can contact Danny at Morris Murdoch. For now, we're going to do the Peace of Revolution of the Utah War and the Civil War era, 1858-1865. Guerrilla Defense Late in September of 1857, two Mormon spies mingled with the oncoming troops and heard their anti-Mormon plans that were not their official orders. 1,100 members of Nauvoo Legion dispatched to East Canyon, dug trenches, and prepared to act as snipers. 44 raiders, led by Lot Smith, instructed to harass them in any way, causing stampedes, burning the canyons before them, and setting fire to their wagons. This may seem like really aggressive actions by the church members, but remember, we've been driven from the states of New York, Missouri, and Illinois, and we're pretty worried about um, government intervention. They were also instructed to keep them awake at night, do anything but hurt the individuals. The raiders torched a total of 74 wagons, containing enough supplies to outfit the large army for three months. They also captured 1,400 of the 2,000 head of cattle accompanying the expedition. Major Smith's militia assisted in burning the two key Mormon outposts, Fort Bridger and Fort Supply, which government forces had expected to occupy. So you can see from this that the Mormons were not taking this attack from the government unseriously. They were taking it very seriously, and they were doing everything in their power to keep them from coming to Utah to destroy the saints and drive them out to somewhere else. It was really intense. These efforts succeeded in keeping U.S. troops from entering Utah and they spent a miserable winter in tents on the high plains of Wyoming. Colonel Kane finally persuaded President Buchanan to let him try to resolve the situation peacefully. Through the winter months of 1857 and 1858, he traveled incognito to Utah, met with the brethren, and persuaded them to allow Governor Cummings into the state peacefully. Thomas Kane, who does never join the church, becomes a key player here in between the government and the church as he tries to convince the government to be peaceful. This really, really helped a lot. His next challenge was to convince the governor appointed to enter Salt Lake City. Just as Kane had promised, Governor Cumming was received warmly and allowed to assume his position as governor. The one condition of the agreement was that he would not bring the soldiers with him. <laughs> uh. Meanwhile, March 1858, 
Brigham Young had sent a letter requesting that all saints that live north of Utah Valley relocate to the south to avoid confrontation with the federal troops. 35,000 members of the church boarded up their homes and businesses, filled them with straw, and amidst dire poverty due to successive grasshopper plagues, moved over the point of the mountain. All church records were taken, and the Salt Lake Temple site was buried to look like a field. Try to imagine how difficult this would have been for the saints in the mid-1800s to straw and, and board their houses, get in their wagons and go over the point of the mountain to, to Utah County to try to save themselves from the, from the war. This is a terrible time. The move south occupied almost two months. Try to imagine over the point of the mountain, right now there's a freeway, but try to imagine over the point of the mountain, a successive uh, train of wagons coming up over the point down to Utah County to try to save themselves from the, from the oncoming troops. It was completed by mid-May. A daily average of 600 wagons passed through Salt Lake City during the first two weeks of the month. 600 wagons, that's a lot for two weeks in a row. Enough strong saints were left behind to tend the crops and torch their homes, buildings, and remaining possessions, inasmuch as the saints would rather lose them to fire than to mobs like the past. I don't think we've experienced anything like this. I think this is something very difficult for us to even understand. But it was a very, very hard time for the saints. The exodus of such a large body of people drew national and international attention to the church. The London Times reported, we are told that they have embarked for a voyage over 500 miles of untracked desert. The New York Times declared, we think it would be unwise to treat Mormonism as a nuisance to be abated by a posse. These are positive reports in a way. The move placed the United States government in an unfavorable light as a persecutor of an innocent people and demonstrated the leadership ability of Brigham Young. Of course, these are positive things that we see happening. Uh, it didn't change the attack, though. Fortunately, negotiations between the government and the church kept the army from invading. Sometime early in 1858, President Buchanan decided to send a peace commission to Utah to offer a pardon to offer of pardon for the saints if they would reaffirm their loyalty to the government. Church leaders were indignant at the idea of a pardon, for they had never been disloyal. Nevertheless, church leaders felt they could accept the pardon because of the raiding activities of the Nauvoo Legion. The agreement included the provision for the army to quietly enter the capital city and then establish a federal military post at least 40 miles away from both Salt Lake City and Provo. Which they do out in um, the, the site west of Cedar City. And so <clears throat> this is a terrible time for the church. Everyone's uh, ready to die or move or both. And the government is trying to figure out what to do as well. Terrible, terrible time. Army Occupation. On July 1st, 1858, Brigham Young began to allow the saints to return north 
to their homes. Hang me in Utah County for a year. Johnston's army provided a great economic boon to the state because of the services they required and the army surplus they left behind in 1861. They also brought gambling, prostitution, alcohol abuse, and anti-Mormon Gentile sentiment to Utah. Clearly, the isolation period in Utah was over. So, uh, despite the good things financially that the army left behind, they brought terrible, terrible sins that had not existed in Utah prior to this. Gambling, prostitution, alcohol abuse, and the Gentile sentiment. Clearly, this was not a happy thing for the saints. Civil War Prophecies Fulfilled Civil War, April 12, 1861 to April 9, 1865 Most of my students are surprised to find out that the Civil War was only four years long, but it was. Doctrine and Covenants, section 87, verse 1 and verse 3 Verily thus saith the Lord concerning the wars that will shortly come to pass, beginning at the rebellion of South Carolina which will eventually terminate in the, in the death and misery of many souls. For behold, the southern states shall be divided against the northern states, and the southern states will call on other nations, even the nation of Great Britain, as it is called, and they shall also call upon other nations in order to defend themselves against other nations, and then war shall be poured out upon all nations." Section 130, verse 13. It may probably arise through the, slave, through the slave questions. Through the slave question. This is a voice declared to me while I was praying earnestly on the subject. December 25, 1832. The saints considered the bloodshed and devastation in the states a judgment upon the nation, for the murders of Joseph and Hiram Smith, for not keeping the commandments of God, and for the injustices inflicted upon the saints in Missouri and Illinois. Tender Mercy Persecution After war had raged for nearly a year, President Young acknowledged that the saints were much better off in the West. Had we not been persecuted, we would now be in the midst of the wars and bloodshed that are desolating the nation, instead of where we are, comfortable located in our peaceful dwellings in these silent, far-off mountains and valleys. This is definitely a prophetic look at things. As we were driven west from New York to Missouri to Illinois and then to Utah, that was seen by the scenes as a tragedy, but Brigham was teaching us that that kept us from being involved in the Civil War, which is true. Some of the most terrible, heinous devastation occurred in, in the counties we lived in, Missouri and Illinois, so it really was a blessing that we moved west. Instead of seeing my brethren comfortably seated around me today, many of them would be found in the front ranks on the battlefield. I realize the blessings of God in our present safety. We are greatly blessed greatly favored and greatly exalted, while our enemies who sought to destroy us are being humbled. Truly a prophetic look at this. This is a beautiful way to look at it. But it's true. The saints felt like they'd been driven from the United States and had to come to Utah of all places. 
to live in the desert, but it was actually the safe place for them to live. A third attempt to join the Union. While the Saints in Utah didn't join in the actual fighting, mm -hmm. they did pay an annual war tax of $26,982 imposed on the Utah Territory by the United States Congress. The Brethren repeatedly reaffirmed their loyalty to the Union. Now, there's a difference between a loyalty to the Union and loyalty to the government. We did not we did not pledge our loyalty to the government because we felt that the government was not following the Constitution. We did, we did believe in the Constitution. Indeed, just as some states were trying to get out of the Union, Utah was <laughs> trying to get in. A third attempt to join the Union failed. Abraham Lincoln decided to leave the Saints alone. Which has a positive and a negative influence, right? Positive in that we did not have to be part of the war. Negative because we didn't become a state. Public relations. During the war, three internationally prominent individuals visited Utah and published positive reports regarding the Mormons in the U.S. and Europe. Utah Mormons helped with the 18-month, April 1860 through October 1861, experiment called the Pony Express. Brigham Young, given the honor of sending the first transcontinental telegraph, affirming our support of the U.S. and the Constitution. He eventually extended the telegraph throughout the territory and beyond 1,000 miles of telegraph line. So lies. The Pioneer Telegraph Office monument marks the spot where the telegraph lines from the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean met. The connection was made on 18th of October, 1861, and allowed the Saints in Salt Lake City to have contact with the outside world. Not only that, it came at a time when they were in need of employment. And they supplied the poles, the subsistence for the workers, and even the transportation for nearly 500 miles of line. Uh, the telegraph was built with church cooperation. In fact, the church uh, added to the Western Union line that came into Salt Lake, and they built the church built their own their own lines that went down south through the territory and connected with the, the telegraph. Salt Lake, and uh, and there was even a telegraph office next to Brigham Young's office. During the Civil War, two units of the Nauvoo Legion were hired to protect the telegraph lines. It also provided the church leaders here in Salt Lake City the ability to have contact with the wagon trains as they came across the plains to be able to monitor their progress or if they were in need of any assistance to send out relief trains to help them in. Now sadly, another icon of the West came to a demise largely because of the connection of those telegraph lines, that being the Pony Express. Government Relations During the war, church members hired to guard the mail routes and telegraph lines continued unfortunate relations with two government-appointed governors, judges, etc. 
Utah Territory again occupied by a California-based military unit due to false reports of President-appointed Governor Harding. City dedicated to the Civil War, especially considering the fact that Utah wasn't granted statehood until some 30 years after the Civil War had been completed. There's an interesting story and a reason why. As early as 1857, the federal government appropriated money and funding in order to ensure a safe telegraph and mail route from San Francisco to the East Coast. When the Civil War broke out, all soldiers guarding the route were called back to East. Immediately, Governor Frank Fuller recognized the need to protect the mail route as well as the telegraph lines and mustered out the Mormon battalion. Twenty-four men answered the call and followed Captain Robert Burton out into the wilderness for the next few weeks to guard the lines. Shortly after that, President Abraham Lincoln contacted Brigham Young here in the Salt Lake Valley and asked if more help couldn't be rendered. President Young responded, and the answer was 106 other men volunteered to go out with Captain Watt Smith and guard the lines, which they did for the next several months. The monument behind me contains the names of all 130 who, in two different companies under Robert Burton and Captain Watt Smith, helped guard those mail lines and the mail route for about three months at the outbreak of the Civil War. While these 130 volunteers did not fight in any of the main battles of the Civil War, they were still enlisted federal soldiers and were complimented for their sacrifice and service. It was noted that these men, after receiving the call, enlisted, armed, and equipped themselves, being too far from headquarters to be otherwise supplied, and were on the march in three days, something otherwise unknown in the history of the Civil War. Histories of the War Department state, that as a company or as individuals, their conduct during that expedition was above reproach. Interesting that while the Civil War broke out on the East Coast, God had literally picked his church up, planted them here in the what was then Mexican territory in the West, and the Latter-day Saints were largely unaffected, except prospered by the Civil War and the hiring of these men to guard the mail route. For more information on Hallowed Ground Sacred Journey, You might be surprised to learn that there's a monument here in Salt Lake City dedicated to the Civil War, especially considering the fact that Utah wasn't granted statehood until some 30 years after the Civil War had been completed. There's an interesting story and a reason why. As early as 1857, the federal government appropriated money and funding in order to ensure a safe telegraph and mail route from San Francisco to the East Coast. When the Civil War broke out, all soldiers guarding the route were called back to East. Immediately, Governor Frank Fuller recognized the need to protect the mail route as well as the telegraph lines and mustered out the Mormon battalion. 24 men answered the call and followed Captain Robert Burton out into the wilderness for the next few weeks to guard the lines. Shortly after that, President Abraham Lincoln contacted Brigham Young here in the Salt Lake Valley and asked if more help couldn't be rendered. 
President Young responded, and the answer was 106 other men volunteered to go out with Captain Lot Smith and guard the lines, which they did for the next several months. The monument behind me contains the names of all 130 who, in two different companies under Robert Burton and Captain Lot Smith, helped guard those mail lines and the mail route for about three months at the outbreak of the Civil War. While these 130 volunteers did not fight in any of the main battles of the Civil War, they were still enlisted federal soldiers and were complimented for their sacrifice and service. It was noted that these men, after receiving the call, enlisted, armed, and equipped themselves, being too far from headquarters to be otherwise supplied, and were on the march in three days, something otherwise unknown in the history of the Civil War. Histories of the War Department state, that as a company or as individuals, their conduct during that expedition was above reproach. Interesting that while the uh, Civil War broke out on the East Coast, God had literally picked his church up, planted them here in the what was then Mexican territory in the West, and the Latter-day Saints were largely unaffected, except prospered by the Civil War and the hiring of these men to guard the mail route. Dealing with Apostates For many years, Joseph Smith III had shown little interest in leading a church. But on April 6, 1860, Joseph III and Emma had attended a conference of a new organization of saints who had rejected the leadership of Brigham Young and remained in the Midwest. During that meeting, Joseph III had accepted leadership over the new organization and distance himself from the saints in Utah by condemning plural marriage. Morrisite Affair Joseph Morris claimed to be receiving revelations and called himself the prophet. After leading several church members away, his second coming prophecies fail and they become discontent. When members of his group attempt to leave the compound, he took them prisoners. Utah militia called out to free them resulted in a three-day war, several deaths, and extremely bad press for the church, which was not involved. So as you can see, there's a lot going on besides just the Civil War. you got Joseph III trying to lead his church away from our church. You've got uh, Joseph Morris, who's claiming to receive revelation, and all kinds of bad things are happening. A lot's going on. The Gibson Affair. This is perhaps the worst incident in the first decade, the first century of church history. Walter Gibson, an advocate for the saints in Washington, D.C., traveled to Utah, joined the church, and was called on a mission to Hawaii. If you look at this picture, you can see he, has, he looks a lot in common with Lorenzo Snow, uh, although he was none, had nothing in common. Upon arriving, he established himself as president of the church, called 12 apostles, who paid $150 each and confiscated all of the members' personal property. This is almost too hard to believe, but that's what he did when he got to Hawaii. He, he took over the whole country, he took over the whole state. He ordained other officers for proportionate fees wore costly gowns, and required the members to bow or crawl in his presence. Which they did. His plan was to raise an army, unite the islands, and make himself king. 
Joseph F. Smith, Lorenzo Snow, and others dispatched to Hawaii when they received a letter from concerned saints there. Lorenzo, <coughs> Lorenzo Snow drowned but revived miraculously. That's when that happened was he was going over to sell the Gibson affair. They excommunicated Gibson and after several weeks most of the members are reconciled to the brethren and their personal property was returned. J.F. Smith stayed and presided over the mission there, established a church-known plantation where the temple, BYU Hawaii, and the Polynesian Cultural Center now exist. I'm kind of surprised at how easily I made this sound. It took weeks to excommunicate Gibson and to retain the property of the church. It was a very, very terrible thing. Growth during the Civil War. Fifty more communities established. In this large Utah Territory. Saints benefit economically from the mining camps in Nevada, Colorado, Utah, and Arizona. Primarily because the miners were too busy mining to, to farm and so the saints provided food for them. <clears throat> Missionary work in North America was completely stopped but continued to grow in Europe with 16,000 Europeans arriving in Utah from 1861 to 1868. Salt Lake City grew to 12,800 by 1870. Ox teams laden with supplies leave Salt Lake and bring immigrants overland much cheaper. Utilizing the skills and labor of newly arriving immigrants, many buildings are completed in Salt Lake City Beehive House, Lion House, City Hall, and Theater. In addition, you can see the pictures of the, of the tabernacle being built here. house is the Lion House, another home of Brigham Young. It was built in 1855-1856 and housed several of his families. Brigham Young was also known as the Lion of the Lord. He passed away here on the 29th of August, 1877. In 1869, the East-West Railroads were joined at Promontory Point, north of Salt Lake City. The coming of the railroad brought with it all the fads and fashions of the world. President Young's daughters were adopting Eastern fashions. So on the 28th of November, 1869, seven months after the arrival of the railroad, President Young met with his daughters in the front parlor of the Lion House. We are about to organize a retrenchment association, he explained to them. Retrench in everything that is not good and beautiful, not to make yourselves unhappy, but to to live so that you can be truly happy in this life and in the life to come. Today that organization has grown into the Young Women's Program of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with membership numbering well over a million. One of the more important rooms in the Lion House was the old parlor on the main level. Brigham Young would ring a bell each evening and gather his family to this room for prayer. In addition, because Brigham's children were home-taught, much of their schooling and lessons were also given in this parlor. 
In the evenings, many socials were held here and young men came to court Brigham's daughters. This edifice has served a variety of purposes and accommodated an extensive range of activities. Besides being home for Brigham Young and his family, some of the east rooms on the main floor were also designated as church office space. Throughout that period of time, numerous local and national dignitaries were entertained in the Lion House. The Lion House is still used as a hospitable community center. President David O. McKay sought to ensure that this historic monument continued to serve as a social center. He assigned the Young Women's Mutual Improvement Association presidency to renovate the Lion House. Work of research and reconstruction began in the spring of 1967. The Lion House was reopened to the public in August 1968 and has been serving guests and visitors ever since. Truman O. Angel, architect for the Salt Lake Temple, also helped design the Lion House. It has a sandstone foundation and the second and third levels are constructed with sun-dried adobe bricks. The basement level housed family workrooms including the kitchen and dining rooms. The upstairs accommodated sleeping rooms for family members and hired help. Walls of the Lion House are 23 inches thick. There are 40 rooms in the home, many have fireplaces and all have windows. There are six large double chimneys to support any stoves and fireplaces throughout the home. Some of the small panes of wavy glass in the windows are the originals. Each floor has a long hallway running the entire length of the home. Two rows of brackets with oil lamps ran down the long halls and provided light. The Building of the Tabernacle Brigham Young saw a large dome-shaped building in vision. Henry Grove built an arch arched-shaped bridge over the Jordan River and was asked by Brigham Young to be the engineer. William Folpson helped design it. Joseph Ridges built the organ. Endeavor. 
Brigham Young appointed an experienced bridge builder, Henry Grow, to oversee construction and to build unprecedented huge elliptical trusses that span the width of the building without intermediate supports. The arches were constructed of timbers pegged together with wooden dowels that were split and wedged at each end. Cracked timbers were wrapped with green rawhide, which contracted when dry and made a tight binding. When finished, the roof was nine feet thick and the plaster ceiling was 68 feet above the floor. Church architect Truman O. Angel designed the exterior cornice and interior woodwork. He also designed the balcony, which increased seating capacity and improved the acoustics by reducing echoes. The unique vaulted ceiling and outstanding acoustics make it possible to hear speakers from the pulpit without the use of a microphone. If all remains still, a pin dropped on the pulpit can be heard clearly in every part of the tabernacle even at the opposite end, 200 feet away. The building was designated as a National Historic Landmark in 1970 and as a National Civil Engineering Landmark in he has different challenges, but they're just his solutions are just inspired. So I hope and pray that we can all stay faithful to the church no matter what happens in our life. As we see so many people leaving the church, let's stay faithful. I say in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for being with us today for another segment of Dr. Bartholomew's insightful review of aspects of church history. This podcast is presented through the facilities of Golden Gems Radio. We invite you to listen to www.goldengems.net, where you will find presented each week a review of the music and career of one of the great musical artists from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when music was music in the golden days of radio. Please join us again next week for another episode in church history with Dr. Bartholomew.